Welcome to another segment of the Dialogue Book Report. Today, I'm joined by three members of the LDS LGBTQ plus community. We have Jacqueline Foster, Connor Hilton, and Adam McLean. And our group today is going to be talking about books uh, about LDS and LGBTQ plus uh, issues. Some academic books, some memoirs, and some fiction. Let's let the group introduce themselves. Jacqueline Foster. Hello. Hey, I'm Jacqueline. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I'm bisexual. I just graduated from the University of Utah as a master's student in history, and I study the history of science and religion in American empire. We also have Connor Hilton. Hi, so I'm Connor. Pronouns he, him. I'm asexual. I'm doing a PhD at the University of Iowa in English, specializing in 19th century British literature and the post-secular. And we also are joined by Adam McLean. Hello, Adam. Hey, um, my name is Adam. Pronouns are he, him. I'm gay. Um, I just graduated from Harvard Divinity School with a Master's of Theological Studies, studying gender, sexuality, and religion. And then I plan to continue focusing my studies on sexual violence and dystopia in the 20th century. All right, so we're going to begin with Greg Prince's Gay Rights in the Mormon Church, which came out a couple of years ago, and it mainly focuses on the church since, I would say, about the 60s. And it places a lot of focus onto the relationship of the LDS church to the legal issues over same-sex marriage in America, but also examines how the rhetoric and policy of the church has shifted over the later half of the 20th century. And he has kind of two main aims of the book to put it into conversation with the larger story of gay rights in America, but also as a resource for LDS members and LGBT members of the church to have a little more context into how the church has evolved on these issues. Opening thoughts for me are, it was, it was very thorough in what it was able to access, which I thought was amazing. It was able to access all of these things that like a normal historian who doesn't have connections to the church might not be able to access. That was one of the the main positive I got from it was like, we get this back backstory that you usually don't receive when you're just like arriving at an archive to just, you know, delve into the newspapers or whatever. He was able to get the very back back emails and things like that, which is really fascinating to see his, the thoroughness of that behind that. And so it was a very thorough in a way of going through that like background to get all that information to us. So I think it's a very good text in that sense. Um, I do have some reservations about it though. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Connor? <laughs> I agree with Adam. I think I also have pretty significant reservations about Prince's work. And maybe I was just disappointed because of how much I love his previous, one of his previous books, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, which I think is just stellar. You can see that Prince doesn't have any training as like a political scientist and doesn't know like, queer theory super well clearly he's acting in sort of like a advocacy capacity but there's a few places where he attributes things to workings of the lds church that do not make any sense if you actually know political science literature like he claims that the church's campaign in prop 8 was so pervasive and successful that it convinced various minority populations to vote against same-sex marriage, which they wouldn't have done otherwise, which ignores the fact that the literature suggests 
pretty robustly that most minority groups in the U.S. have fairly moderate, if not conservative, positions on social issues. And there's a few places where he editorializes that body of research in a way that probably less effective for his stated goals. But I think you can see sort of also in how Taylor Petrie in one of the other books we'll talk about recounts some of the same information that Prince does, even using Prince's research, but presents it in a different way. Yeah, for sure. I thought it was really interesting because I agree with Adam that there's just so much information in there that would be very difficult for any other researcher to access. But I felt like it ended up a little bit disjointed just because, and this is a hallmark of Prince's writing, that his writing tends to be very thematic rather than chronological. You also see this in his book on David O. McKay. But in Gay Rights in the Mormon Church, I felt like what was happening is you you read all of this political stuff about Hawaii and Alaska and Prop 8, etc. And then you go back and now you're talking about the church's involvement with Evergreen versus North Star and whatever. And this is happening at the same time as the Prop 8 campaign, but it's like 100 pages later. And so you don't really get to see the synthesis of how all of these different things worked out. And I felt like the way he he divided it up into topics, coming back to Connor's comment about editorializing, it created this kind of artificial march toward progress, where in every topic, you have this narrative of a march towards progress. But because the topics are so asynchronous, you lose the fact that some of this progress is happening at the same time as setbacks in this other area. And maybe, in fact, uh, the setbacks are recurring in response to the progress and vice versa. And you don't really get to synthesize all of the information that he accessed that's really valuable. And so for me, this book is really valuable as a research tool, you know, when I'm writing about some of the same events, but it made it difficult for me to kind of keep the thread of how everything was happening. And I found it got a lot easier when we got to the points that I lived through and I can remember, but it really made me wonder like what gaps I was missing about stuff that happened before I was really tuned into this or before I was born because of that asynchronous style. Yeah, one thing that really like points that out is I, mean, I just have the Halo contents pulled up here and it's like chapter three is secure 1.0, seven is backlash 1.0. So you see that he's telling this like overarching narrative there that is not quite narrative because of the thematicness of it. And it does have that anachronistic, we could like use that word for it almost, where he's like trying to read back into history. A positive view for the church is a little bit of what I felt when I was reading it. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting so it's like it's very much a focus of I've, I've sometimes joked that the book should be called Gay Men in the Mormon Church because that's the focus. And on one hand, I very deeply sympathize with the fact that the church is focused on gay men. And so that's where the sources are. But what frustrated me is Prince is so good at oral histories. For his David O. McKay book, he took something like 200 oral histories. And why can't you take oral histories of lesbians and of trans people and bisexual people, you know, and talk about what was it like to come of age in the church as a lesbian in the 80s? And, you know, there's all these opinions about homosexuality, but at the same time, they don't apply to you. And what was that silence like? You know, I feel like he had the skills to do that and he didn't. And that really surprised me, especially the one chapter, I think it's literally called like what about lesbians or something he starts talking about how being childless is a very painful aspect of the celibacy requirement in the church right now but 
a lot of gay men want children too. And a lot of lesbians don't want children. And I felt like there was a lot of kind of unconsciously reifying a lot of the gender stereotypes that the LGBT community isn't really interested in perpetuating as part of their own narrative. I think the other piece of that frustration, right, is that Prince acknowledges that there's this problem in the focus on gay men and is like, but I'm just gonna perpetuate the problem, I guess, because I can't do anything else. Because he's so close to doing something else and then just didn't. Just, I think, well, yeah. I share that and frustration. He, he perpetu- yeah, and he perpetuates that focus even when the sources don't constrain him. So, for instance, I did my undergrad in genetics and biotechnology, and Prince also has a background in the sciences. And then we've come to, you know, this kind of study of queer history. And when he's talking about the biology of homosexuality, all of the studies he cites are studies on gay men, even though with the scientific literature, you don't have the constraints of like the church's singular focus. And you could be talking about the scientific literature on queer women or on being trans or any of those things. And he doesn't, which to me kind of belies the argument that this focus is solely the fault of the church and that his hands were tied by it, essentially. And the other thing about the biology thing is he just he has this really um, fervent belief that if everyone accepts that homosexuality is just kind of a biological fact of humanity, that's just a natural variation in the human species and it's genetic, then eventually the church will change his its position. And I don't I don't think I quite see it as a foregone conclusion in the way that he does. In my last semester at BYU, I was taking a human genetics class and the professor planned a whole lesson on the biological aspects of homosexuality. And he said, well, you know, what's also biological is a predisposition to alcoholism and a predisposition to promiscuity and a predisposition to becoming a serial killer. And the church is against all of those. So just because something is biological doesn't mean that the church has to accept it. And I raised my hand and I said, as a queer student, this is really offensive. You're comparing me to an alcoholic promiscuous serial killer. And he was like, no, no, we all have our natural man. Like, for instance, uh, some people get angry a lot, which <laughs> I was like, but you're not talking about your natural man. You're just talking about me, alcoholics, promiscuous people, and serial killers. <laughs> um, and so I feel like there is people, even among members of the church, who are accepting kind of the scientific literature on homosexuality. They are finding a way, you know, going into Mosiah 319 or whatever to harmonize that with existing church policy. I don't think it's quite the smoking gun for policy change that he believes it is. When I was reading it, I knew a lot of the like different things that he does around Utah where he goes around and presents um, that biological argument and convinces a lot of people of it in order to, for him, I think he hopes to share that in order to, you know, evangelize it into changing the church. And I felt like the book almost felt because that was like, one of his first chapters focusing so much on that biological reasoning. It felt like all the history was just there so he could get across that biological argument. And then the history was just like added on. Um, That was a very not charitable reading from the beginning of it though. Um, And came from a lot of the outside stuff that he was doing and the stuff that he still does in order to evangelize that idea that is not always the best for the LGBT community or for the Mormon community. Yeah. And Maybe if we start shifting gears and start talking a little bit about Taylor Petrie's book, 
Tabernacles of Clay, because I think this is a good connection here where we're dealing with the issue of like, what is queerness and where does it come from? And what does that mean? Where uh, Prince is really grounding himself in biology and Petri is really grounding himself in queer theory and uh, a lot of these other arguments that while they're engaging the concepts of bodies and the way that we theorize and talk about bodies, it's from like this vastly different perspective. I've struggled with this a bit because Petri's approach feels so much better to me, but is that just because I just got out of grad school and spent two years reading theorists, <laughs> you know? I also liked Petri's approach a lot better, but I am still in grad school, so uh, <laughs> share that bias. <laughs> I thought one of, the, one of the strengths that this really brought is that there's been a lot of really good work done in queer theory to bring queerness into conversation with race in America. And that set up really well. Uh, he spends his whole first chapter talking about how the church's stance on racial issues ties into the church's stance on homosexuality and marriage equality and all of these things. And I thought that was such a valuable intervention because so often when people are trying to make sense of the church's policy on queer issues, they get really heavily into comparisons with the priesthood and temple ban. And some Black members of the church have pushed back on this and said, you know, the way that you're framing this tends to make it sound like we've solved the race issue in the church and we haven't. And you're making kind of this facile comparison to LGBT issues. Whereas I think Petri's approach was a lot more nuanced and it's a really good blueprint for if we want to have this conversation, how do we do it in a way that emphasizes the shared history without making it sound like, oh, this was problem A that we solved and now with problem B, like we think it's this uncomplicated roadmap. I completely agree with that nuanced look. Like when I read that first chapter, I was, I just like had to sit it down for a moment and I was like, okay, like I've always hated that comparison with the priesthood ban and like gay marriage um, in the church because it, it felt like a very simplistic comparison that doesn't go into the theological like nuances that we have within the church and the stuff that has been taught throughout the past. But Petrie's first chapter definitely nuanced that enough for me to go, oh, okay, like I can think through this now. I can think more critically about this rather than having that basic, I don't want to compare them at all. And so it definitely did that for me and allowed me to like think better about those two topics and conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I felt like the other thing that the other thing queer theory really brings to this is treatment of gender, where, you know, ideas about patriarchal roles between men and women, you can see how that intertwines feminism with um, with lesbian versus gay identity and how those have occurred differently within the church and also with trans issues and kind of untangles the previous uh, conflation of gender identity and sexuality that you get in like the 70s towards now where the church has started to really recognize like, okay, we can't just lump trans members in with homosexuality and think that our approach to the one thing is addressing the other. Um, and it does a lot more to visibilize, I think, kind of the entire community rather than the focus on just gay men, even though the church has only been talking about gay men. The queer theory gives you the tools to read into those silences and to read into what conversations about gay men imply for the rest of the community. Yeah, I was really impressed with how Petri was able to sort of expand the conversation even though he's working with materials that had that same sort of narrow focus 
but that he seemed really attuned to the ways that anything that's talking about homosexuality in a limited sense for gay men can also have these like ripple effects and consequences for other members of the queer community. I was just really impressed with how Petrie's able to sort of tease out what those implications seem to be. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, how about we move on to the um, the film studies book, whose title is escaping me. So it's uh, called Latter-day Screens, Gender, Sexuality, and Mediated Mormonism. It's by Brenda R. Weber. And I think the book is fascinating. There's a lot in it. It's like interested in using Mormonism as like a academic lens that you can then apply to other things. So she's not really invested in Mormonism as like a theological set of ideas, which was occasionally frustrating for me because I am interested in that. <laughs> but she does some really fascinating work that I think dovetails with a book we're not talking about. Peter Cavellio's Make Yourselves Gods um, mm-hmm. in sort of the like queerness inherent in polygamy and sort of looks at different portrayals in the media, both fictional and otherwise. A paragraph that still sticks out to me that I want someone to like use as a launching pad for other stuff is... Um, she like talks about Joseph Smith as a like camp queer icon, uh-huh. specifically like sort of in the context of the Book of Mormon musical. I'm very fascinated by that sort of like tease of an idea and what you could speculate out from that in a sort of like theoretical way. Yeah, I've read a book whose title I'm not going to mention here because it wasn't a very good book and I don't feel comfortable promoting it. But, um, but the cover of the book features uh, Joseph Smith in drag. And it was it was so interesting to me because somehow it perfectly captures the vibe of the book while never really being addressed in the book as to why that's the cover. <laughs> But yeah, that, that, that's oh, yeah. the image. I think I have a book on my shelf right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so for the Weber book, is it about like Mormon portrayals in the films or like Mormon themes in the film? Or is it like, how does that work for it? Like, like what was the, the films that they looked at kind of like, what were the, the sense? Yeah. So, so Weber's interested in portrayals of Mormons. So she talks a little bit about the Book of Mormon musical talks about a bunch of things that portray polygamy, both Big Love and some of the other reality TV shows. Talks about some literature. Most of the stuff she looks at is not things created by Mormons, but things that depict Mormons in some capacity or another. And she is very broad in her scope of what qualifies. So interested in various fundamentalist groups and other sects of Mormonism, which is good to that yeah, answer definitely. i was like is it going to talk about god's army is it going to talk about uh, like, no. um the falls or is it going to talk about like <laughs> the testaments or the restoration right, yeah, video yeah. like um, yeah. But okay so it's like mormon portrayals within various media yeah yeah and she does do some like news media stuff too talks a little bit about elizabeth smart and that sort of thing um maybe we should shift gears and start talking about the memoirs I should probably start with Tom Christofferson's book that we may be one 
from a few years ago. It's been a while since I've read it, but I remember the biggest takeaway that I had was his sort of insistence that his sexuality was like a central part of who he was and what his identity is and not you could not tease it out of Tom Christopherson and come out with a non-gay Tom like the gayness was integral to who he was which I think is something that was really needed in Mormon queer discourse at least yeah and I think that is like the kind of clout of him being the brother of an apostle, I think puts a lot of weight behind that intervention in the discourse. Cause it, it reminds me of uh, what Blair Osler has termed a celestial queer genocide. The idea that you'll be resurrected straight and that it will be easy to just kind of tease out the queerness from your essential being. And so memoirs like Tom's that make it clear that it's not that simple I think do a lot to move the conversation forward. Definitely. Yeah. I, uh, I personally didn't have like the best response to Christopherson's book, but as I, I discussed with other people, they, they talked about how like their family members read the book and they finally felt comfortable inviting their partner to the family event. Like the family felt like open to that. And like, it's a good like first baby step in that way, yeah. allowing um, heterosexual families to like be more open to a, at least their, non like they're more conforming lgbt kids per se um because tom christopherson seems very conforming himself it's good to have like that when thinking through his book because like even next month in the july enzyme there's a article coming out about um, a gay man who kind of rejects the label of gay um and so it brings that conversation back into it um and i think that's important now as we like move forward and gay not issues but like um, between the LGBTQ community and Latter-day Saint communities and things like that, like realizing that like there's people who believe that the labels are harmful and some who like need the labels and things like that. And it brings up that conversation. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like there's kind of three main categories of queer Mormon books. You know, there's the category of there's stuff where I'm like, I would not recommend this to people. And then there's stuff where I'm like, this is an excellent first book for someone to read on the issue, but I wouldn't want it to be the last thing they read on the issue. And then there's stuff where I'm just like, oh, this is so good. And it's so amazing. And I have to remember that 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 third category, sometimes it can't be people's first book. You have to take books for the second category, even if you have criticisms of them, that they do this really valuable work in um, introducing people to the topic. Speaking of uh, books from the first category that are just really problematic... (laughs) Um, Adam, do you want to talk about? So I uh, wrote a rather interesting review of the book "Izzy Nuts" by Dennis Schleicher. Schleicher, I don't, I don't remember how to say it. Some German thing. And in that book, he relates his um, story of being a late convert to the church. You know, having already gone through um, a very evangelical, if I remember correctly, upbringing, and then you know later in life, his forties or fifties or like however old, but you know, after coming out as gay, he joins the church and he's only been a member of the church for like three years when the book is now published. And so it's a a very new, uh, fresh converted look at the church, but in that way, it doesn't give that nuanced portrayal per se, or even that like, he's very positive toward the church, which is, which is great. It's not a bad thing to be positive about the church, but it, it doesn't provide that, that nuancing that we generally look for in an LGBT book. 
Well, it reminds me a little bit of how the the Mormon and gay website, you know, it started out with so many videos of gay members of the church who were, you know, making the church work for them. And then as the years have gone on, the videos have just kind of quietly without fanfare dropped off the website. This idea of taking a longitudinal look at the church, where I think a lot of a lot of queer members, there there are, is a period in their life where they are making it work and they find they're happy and they find that the thing the church offers them is totally worth the sacrifice. But I feel like the longer people spend, the more difficult that gets, and the more that the problems start to weigh on them and the more that they feel like, oh, maybe I can look elsewhere for for the benefits I've been receiving. The biggest worry I always have with books like Izzy Nuts or that we maybe want is that it is the only book that people read. And so it's the book that they place their entire view for LGBT people on. So like if someone just reads Izzy Nuts, they're going to go up to a friend who's gay and go like, why did you leave? This guy is still there. He's happy. He's living it. He's like joyful and rejoicing in the gospel. Or if they read that we maybe won, they get the perspective of, oh, you're just going to be gay for about 20 years and then you're going to come back and it'll be okay. We'll be good. Mm-hmm. Those of you that like, if you just read one book, you automatically read that onto everyone else. It's the universal it reminds me a lot of the reaction to Josh Wheat's um, coming out post where, you know, he posted multiple follow up posts like, hey, please do not use my story to try to force other queer members into mixed orientation marriages. But no matter how much he protested, people kept doing it. And then, you know, something like a decade later, he posts and he's like, you know, it was maybe the right move for us at the time, but now it's become untenable and we're getting a divorce. I think it was difficult for some people to hold space for that for him just because they had experienced so much pressure from the ways that people had weaponized his stories. And so I do worry about simplistic portrayals like that, not only for the way that they're wielded against other queer members when there's not really a universal queer experience, but also because I feel like it does create a lot of pressure on people for themselves to have their own journeys kind of change and evolve over time. Um, If we go back to the framework that you were talking about um, at the beginning of the fiction where you have like the books that you don't want to, the books that are like the intro and then the books that are like really far, I would put um, another book that I read, the Saving Alex book by Alex Cooper. Joanna Brooks also helped her write it. But um, that book is about how Alex was sent to a random non-professional conversion therapy home in like Southern Utah, like her parents found out and just like ushered her over there. And like, it's, Mm -hmm. it's one of those really deep books where like it portrays very real what someone goes through for that. So like there's stories of her just like standing against the wall with rocks and a backpack just for no reason at all in order to help her overcome being a lesbian. And like, that's a book that you don't want to start anyone there either. Um, because like, you don't want that like terrible portrayal to then turn that person off from reading LGBT stories. Um, mm-hmm. But you still want someone to get there eventually to be able to read that and recognize the, the harm and the pain that's gone through um, the LGBTQ community in relation to the Latter-day Saint community. Yeah. And I think there's a very difficult, uh, last semester in grad school, I read this article about how homosexuality was removed from the DSM and was declassified as a mental illness. And part of that was that in the 70s, um, gay people felt a lot of pressure to really perform happiness and perform well-being and mental health um, in, in order to make that really important change. But that created a lot of barriers for the community to actually seek help that was needed in dealing with discrimination because in order to be homosexual, you had to be happy is what this um, article argues. 
And when I read that, I was so interested because I felt like my experience with Mormonism was the opposite of that, where sometimes we get so focused on the harm that's done to LGBT Mormons that we perpetuate this narrative that if you're not in crisis because of Mormonism, you can't leave. And that if you're not in crisis because of your identity, maybe you're not a legitimate member of the community. Maybe it isn't something that's so deep down in your soul because apparently you you can deal with it and not be in crisis. And uh, there's this balancing act of in advocacy of making room for all of these different stories and recognizing that because the community is in a really difficult position, no one memoir is going to sum up the entirety of what it's like to be um, LGBT in the church. That's a good moment to then turn to our last little section of fiction, because like fiction allows us to portray even more stories, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and like some of those fiction that I thought of before this podcast was, of course, um, Harrison's The Women's Book of Mormon. And then other ones are like Autobiography by Christina Lauren, which is about um, gay Mormon teen in Utah. Um, Melissa Leilani Larson has um, her play Little Happy Secrets, which I feel like that and Harrison's The Women's Book of Mormon, which both um, have connections to BCC Press. I, I feel like fiction is such a potent force, especially for queer women and especially for lesbians, where because there's been so much institutional silence about it in the church and uh, because lesbians tend to be invisibilized even within the queer community, fiction is this really potent way of exploring women's experiences and giving a voice to um, what's going on right now, uh, Carrie Spencer is working on a an anthology of writings by queer Mormon women that will be coming out in a year or two. Something she's told me about is how she and her fiancé attended an affirmation event and her fiancé didn't grow up in the church. And she turns to Carrie and says, where are all the lesbians? We need to call call some lesbians and get them to this event because there's no lesbians here. And it's just like this gay man fest and it's supposed to be for the whole community. And how Carrie just felt horrified when she realized she didn't have anyone to call. You know, that there were just so many queer Mormon in the church. Mormon women in the church either just stay in mixed orientation marriages or just fade away and don't find the same community in queer Mormonism. And I think that fiction is really powerful tool for pushing back on that silence. Yeah, I think Mel's work is just beautiful. The way that she's able to write moments that you are like crying on one page and then you're like, gut busting laughing on the next just i think captures at least my human experience better than a lot of other writers and that just like what jacqueline's saying works as a very like powerful force in a world that might otherwise silence those voices yeah let's um let's revisit the women's book of mormon because we mentioned it and then didn't actually discuss it on its own I think it's a really powerful and imaginative work that provides more work to do with the Book of Mormon. To give just a brief overview of it, it's a revisiting of the entire Book of Mormon story, but through the perspective of non-cisgender male characters. Um, It's called the Women's Book of Mormon, but it has um, a multiplicity 
of um, gender representation through those things. And it's this story of these people handing down their ability to tell their side of the story. Because we don't, in the Book of Mormon itself, we don't get that story of, oh, I just... Lehi's wife, Soraya. Soraya. <laughs> I'm even in this part of the book. I'm like, Sarah, Soraya, it's somewhere. Um, <laughs> but we don't, we don't get her perspective at all. And so it's providing those, those voices in that space. And I think it's a very imaginative take of making theology in that way. It's a return to a text that is very patriarchal. It's a return to a text that is very one-sided. And it allows us to get other views and allows us to play a little bit more in that scripture. And so that's why I personally think it's a really beautiful book that gives us the opportunity to uh, make a new or even restore, you know, the Book of Mormon as a a text itself. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think what Harrison's done with her, this is like the third thing she's written for BCC Press that's sort of in this imaginative Book of Mormon speculative fiction space. I think all of that work in this one particularly is like building out a very interesting, productive way for women and other marginalized figures to sort of imagine themselves into scripture and theological spaces that they may be not brought into institutionally. And that it's all done like in fiction, I think is just very cool. And there's this very like long tradition of doing that. So like if you go back into the medieval period, that's what people did with the the scriptures then. I mean, you could even argue that some of the texts in the New Testament are fan fictions of, you know, original gospels or things like that, or anything, the Apocrypha or like all these other things. We have these gospels um, going all the way back to early Christianity. Then we have the same kind of like fan fiction, speculative work on, you know, a gospel narrative. And then in the medieval period, you have that same type of fan fiction work on that. And so... Harrison is like entering into this long, long tradition of literature. And then also when I read her book, I thought about the tradition of like the women's Bible and, you know, feminist leanings toward feminist scriptural interpretations that started in the 70s. And she's leaning into that tradition a little bit too, more so in a, not a second wave feminism, but more of like a third, fourth wave with all the intersectionality that she's doing and the very active intersectionality that she's doing. She's very open about that in her introduction when she's like, I'm very deliberately, you know, doing things here for a purpose. Yeah. And I think that with a lot of the conversations about LGBT issues in the church tend to hit roadblocks when we talk about the eternities and eternal future and also with scriptures and uh, scriptural justifications that the ability to explore things in fiction and be imaginative is a way to imagine our ways around those roadblocks and then you know when we find things that resonate you can then start to bring that out of fiction and back into reality and say, so, okay, how could we incorporate that within um, the sometimes very literal approach that we take in the church towards these issues? Another book of Latter-day Saint gay fiction is Latter-day Saints, an anthology of gay Mormon fiction uh, edited by Gerald S. Argetsinger in 2013. Uh, Argetsinger is a uh, gay Mormon theater scholar in New York. He's, a, he's actually been involved with the... Uh, Pokemore pageant quite a bit. And so anyways, that's, it's an interesting collection if you have a chance. Um, another 
fiction thing that I love because um, it was presented. So um, the HBL, the Harold Bailey Library at BYU was doing a thing on graphic novels and they put this graphic novel out before reading it, but it's called um, Stripping Warriors or Stripling Warriors. It's a comic. Uh, Connor, have you read it before? You like uh, I've, I've <laughs> um, heard of it. I've looked at some of the yeah. art. I haven't read the whole thing. Um, and so that's like another thing of like imagining a fantasy, but focusing it in on the LGBT side of it. And that's another like portrayal that I would say don't go read it if you're not comfortable going to PG-13 movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's a it's a different portrayal than like a fiction. It's a graphic novel portrayal of it. Well, how would you say the field of Mormon LGBT uh, scholarship is right now? Is it a, is it a maturing field? What works do you think are still missing from the field? I think that we really need a cultural history of queer Mormonism. You know, uh, any of the academic works, uh, including Petrie's, although he does the most to move beyond this, but it tends to be very focused on institutional Mormonism. And uh, obviously that's really important because the church is so centralized, but we, we do need just kind of a cultural history of just everyday LGBT identities, you know, some micro histories in these contexts, drawing from the great work we have that can use the institutional histories to contextualize it. Um, and then the other thing, as I said, again, the queer Mormon women anthology that's coming out, I think is going to be a really great reader to hopefully spark some ideas on, on how to move into that field, as well as just opening up more space for talking about queer women and uh, non-cisgender folks, cisgender male folks. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see some like speculative theology stuff, which I know Blair Osler's working on some things in that vein. And then we just need way more stuff on trans issues, especially with the, the handbook changes that just came out that got a little overshadowed by the BYU Honor Code Office thing. Transgender issues are integrated into these other books with vastly disparate degrees of success, but that we need some books that are just exclusively focused on trans issues because that has been such a neglected area that these kind of more all-encompassing anthologies aren't going to make up on their own for the lack of trans voices. I agree with all of that. Let's have more. That's always what I want. Um, I think for me, since I come from a very speculative background, I would love to see more speculative works that imagine things into the future. Like, what does a church look like that is open to um, transness a little bit more? What does a church look like when, you know, there are different forms of marriages? Like, some of the the fiction that I, like, have in my little, like, guilty pleasure um are ones that are like, what is the church like in, you know, the year 3000 in the firm? Um, there's one by Eric James Stone where it's like a sacrament meeting inside the sun and there's this like giant whale alien that's there. And so like things like that, that like we need everything to look at what we're doing now, but also to imagine better futures for us and to see what that looks like. We can imagine it now and think like, oh, gay people are going to get married eventually in the temple. Cool. Um, or like are going to be allowed somehow to have civil marriages in the church. But it's like, what does that actually look like and what does that give for the hope? So like to provide that and then see what other damage, not other damage, what other um, complications that brings about too. Absolutely second that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I really very honored to have this group gather together and, and talk under the aegis of dialogue. I look forward to 
reviews coming out from Adam and Connor coming up in this issue. And hopefully Jacqueline in the future, we're going to get you in some reviews as well. We're very, very honored to have all of you talking about this today. And as, as more books come out in the future, we'd love to hear your continued comments and, and voices. Thank you very much. Uh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you.